Alright, so we're in Zechariah. Son of Berechiah, son of Edo. Which means the Lord remembers. The Lord at the appointed time. Amen. The Lord remembers, the Lord blesses at the appointed time. And Zechariah is about to get into the appointed time. Like a great growing orchestral crescendo, we are now in chapter 9 and we are going to get more intense from here to the end of this book, chapter 14. Absolutely stunning. I don't want to get ahead of myself, but I'm very excited to be where we are this morning. Zechariah chapter 9, verse 1. The burden of the word of the Lord is against the land of Hadrach, with Damascus as its resting place. For the eyes of men, especially of all the tribes of Israel, are toward the Lord. And Hamat also, which borders on it, Tyre and Zidon, though they are very wise. For Tyre built herself a fortress and piled up silver like dust and gold like the mire of the streets. Behold, the Lord will dispossess her and cast her wealth into the sea, and she will be consumed with fire. Ashkelon will see it and be afraid. Gaza, too, will writhe in great pain. Also Ekron, for her expectation has been confounded. Moreover, the king will perish from Gaza, and Ashkelon will not be inhabited. And a mongrel race will dwell in Ashdod, and I will cut off the pride of the Philistines, and I will remove their blood from their mouth and their detestable things from between their teeth. Then they also will be a remnant for our God, and be like a clan in Judah, and Ekron like a Jebusite. But I will camp around my house because of an army, because of him who passes by and returns, and no oppressor will pass over them anymore. For now I have seen with my eyes. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout in triumph, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. He is just and endowed with salvation, humble and mounted on a donkey, even on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Father, as we open up this prophecy this morning, we pray your spirit would teach us and enlighten us and invigorate us, Father, to the task ahead. For we know that we are in the days of which Zechariah is about to speak. We know, Father, that, that times are wearing out, that the days are numbered. We know there's only so long. We pray, Father, we would be an energized people bearing the gospel of Jesus Christ. Hungry for your word constantly, but even as we eat and we feed on your word, Father, build up and strengthen to go and to speak truth in every place. Lord, your word is remarkable. Help us to see and know and understand as you intend. And Father, we invite you to change our hearts by it. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, it was an epic moment. Crowds lined the streets. They shouted his name. They proclaimed his power. They wondered at his greatness. The entire city was abuzz with excitement when superstar LeBron James returned to Cleveland. (laughs) After four years and two NBA titles down in Miami, James came home to attempt an historic run for the Cleveland Cavaliers. He wants to give them an NBA title. He was greeted with a thunderous ovation before the game in front of 20,000 fans. Can you even imagine walking into a coliseum, an arena, with 20,000 people shouting wildly your name? Excited about your presence there? Thousands more packed the streets outside. This was Thursday night. 
Opening game, LeBron shot miserably. His passes were errant. This is from the AP. He didn't look good doing much other than tossing powder into the air. His homecoming was horrendous. The New York Knicks ruined the megastar's emotional return home with a 95-90 victory over the Cavaliers on Thursday night. And ultimately, for all the show and all the spectacle, the great ones always let us down. It's not their fault. They're only human. And human beings can only do so much. And the Bible is clear. Isaiah chapter 2 verse 11. The proud look of man will be abased. And the loftiness of man will be humbled. And the Lord alone will be exalted in that day. For the Lord of hosts will have a day against everyone who is proud and lofty. And everyone who is lifted up. That he may be abased. Now I'm, I'm not here this morning to get down on LeBron. Actually to raise up another superstar. A megastar. Our Lord Jesus Christ. How different is the Lord Jesus? Where man comes seeking fame, the Lord comes quietly, humbly. Where man comes saying, I want to leave my mark, the Lord left his mark in the most horrendous way possible. Where man comes saying, look at me, Jesus comes saying, look at me and live. Keep that in mind as we study this morning. As we consider these things, it is late in the game. We have come to the third and final section now of the prophecies of Zechariah, and it's primarily prophecy now. We don't know the date, but it's probably 20 to 30 years later than the last thing that we saw in chapter 7 and chapter 8. That happened in 518. Remember, the book begins in 520, and then in chapter 7 and 8, we're in 518, and now some 20, 30 years perhaps have passed. It may even be as late as around 480, 470 B.C. We're reading the writings of a much older Zechariah, who now begins to receive his most amazing prophecies in chapters 9, 10, 11, 12, 13, and 14. Now, I point that out to remind you. It was young Zechariah who saw the eight visions in the night. Chapters 1 through 6. It was young Zechariah who heard God's answer for the Bethel Committee. Back in chapters 7 and 8. Now, as an older man, he he receives his, his most remarkable oracles. Two of them across the last section of this book. Note the arc of Zechariah's life. He sees those visions. He hears from the Lord in his youth. And then, quiet. Silence. Stillness. Long years. At least as far as we can tell. Long years of inaudible ministry. It's only much later now. The the prophecies that we're going to get into came to Zechariah. That's interesting to me and amazing that Jim would point out in communion that your young men will have visions and your old men will dream dreams. That's right here in my notes. (laughs) You see, when we're young, we have vision. We think in terms of crescendos. Each life experience must exceed the last. It's got to get better. We rise up on wings of anticipation when we're young. But age and wisdom teach us that maturity is developed over long periods of quiet faithfulness. 
The young person thinks to become mature in Christ, you have to have vision. You have to see Him. You have to hear from Him. You have to have experience with Him. you got to be on the mountaintop. That's where it happens. But the aged Christian, the mature believer, recognizes, learns. It's really when God's not speaking that my faith develops. It's really when God is quiet, when He is allowing me years to walk out and to live out my faith. No wonder young men see visions and old men dream dreams. So this last section of Zechariah divides into two prophecies that begin with the immediate future. This will happen within 150 to, to 200, well, actually 150 to 450 years. What he's about to talk about is going to take place. But then the distant future, which has not yet happened. We won't get to that this morning. Verse 1 tells us this is the burden of the word of the Lord. And that's an interesting phrase. That's only used three times in the entire Bible. The burden of the word of the Lord. The word burden is masah. Now, we've seen the word before. Other prophets use the word. It means oracle. It means a threatening judgment. So burden is a good translation. Isaiah and Jeremiah and Ezekiel, they all use the word burden. The burden uh, for, for Egypt or the burden for Babylon. But only Zechariah in chapter 9, verse 1, and in chapter 12, verse 1, and Malachi in chapter 1, verse 1, only these three times do we see this phrase, the burden of the word of the Lord. Why is that significant? Because this burden has to do with the word himself. This burden has to do with the Lord Jesus, the word who became flesh, John 1, 14, and dwelt among us. The burden of the word of the Lord. Ultimately, when we get down to it, this burden is about Jesus. This judgment is of Jesus, not judging Jesus, but it is Jesus' judgment. It's his burden. Verse 1, the burden of the word of the Lord is against the land of Hadrach, with Damascus as its resting place. For the eyes of men, especially of all the tribes of Israel, are toward the Lord, and Hamat also, which borders on it, Tyre and Zidon, though they are very wise, although they think they're very wise. Interesting, the eyes of the Lord, or the eyes of men, especially of all the tribes of Israel, are toward, toward the Lord. Why? Because they're all shaken in their sandals. Because they're fearful. Everyone's looking to God. They're terrified as to what is about to happen. Interesting, in the same location in the world today, eyes are looking to God. Because people are terrified. People don't know what's going to happen. As ISIS continues its march, airstrikes are not really working. And ISIS is expanding. And terrorist fighters from around the world are pouring in to Syria and Iraq to be part of this Islamic State. And there is terror on the march. Well, that's what was going on here. All eyes were toward the Lord because all eyes were terrified at what was taking place in this region of Hadrach and Damascus and Hamat. There in the region of Syria. And then over on the Mediterranean coast, you've got Tyre and Zidon. A new power is rushing onto the scene. A rapid-fire, fast-moving army. A a small, tight, 50,000-man, roughly, army, which is small compared to the other armies that would fight. But this army was quick on the draw. This was the army of Alexander the Great. 
And part of the reason Alexander was so successful in his military campaigns was he struck fast, he struck hard, and he either completely destroyed and then left. Or he had people that aligned with him that he could leave behind, but he didn't have enough men to plant. So he would wipe out and move on, wipe out and move on. And he did this very quickly in a very about a decade from start to finish was Alexander's march from obscurity to absolute greatness, Alexander the Great. So everybody's afraid. All eyes on the Lord. When people feel overrun or threatened or fearful, how often do eyes turn to the Lord? How full were our churches the morning after 9-11? How full are our churches every time when, when America goes to war? Now, we've been warring for quite a while now. People are weary. But when people are terrified, there's that sense of looking to the Lord. Psalm 123, verse 2, Behold, as the eyes of servants look to the hand of their master, as the eyes of a maid to the hand of her mistress, so our eyes look to the Lord our God until He is gracious to us. And even people who are not church-going, who are not faithful followers of Jesus, man, when things go bad, there's a tendency to kind of look up. Eyes to the Lord. To which I would say, why not just have our eyes on the Lord all the time? Why do we wait till we're terrified? Micah 7, verse 7, But as for me, I will watch expectantly for the Lord. I will wait for the God of my salvation. That's where I'm going to fix my eyes. On Jesus. But all eyes were on the Lord. Hadrach. Hadrach is a great city-state in Persia-controlled Syria. Their neighbors, Damascus and Hamat. And again, Tyre and Zidon nearby on the coast. And what this burden of the word of the Lord is about to do is give us a study in contrast. A contrast of greatness beginning with the vivid detail of Alexander the Great's march down the south. From up in the north moving around and coming down the coastal south and ending up in Jerusalem, what is described by Zechariah about 150 years before it happened is exactly the march and the destruction of Alexander the Great and his armies. The burden of the word of the Lord. In the battle of Isis, interestingly, it's I-S-S-U-S, in 333 B.C., Alexander's Greco-Macedonian army conquered Persia's Darius III. In conquering him, his strike force, as I said before, moved very quickly. In fact, Daniel chapter 7 describes Alexander the Great and his army as a leopard with wings. He moves so fast. He storms to the south. He takes out city after city, ultimately heading down toward Jerusalem. Verse 3, he ends up over in Tyre first, on the Mediterranean coast north of Israel, what is Lebanon today. For Tyre built herself up a fortress and piled up silver like dust and gold like mire of the streets. But the Lord will dispossess her and cast her wealth into the sea and she will be consumed with fire. And we have actually studied this in a previous study, exactly what happened to Tyre. Tyre was a city-state there on the coast, very, very wealthy, a merchant state. And Tyre had both its, its coastal capital and its island capital. And their strategy, and it worked against Babylon, it worked against Assyria, their strategy was that the vast sum of their wealth was on the island, off the coast, unreachable. And there were so much stores in terms of food and provision there, they could last there for years. 
And in fact, they lasted years against Nebuchadnezzar before he finally gave up and Babylon went home and left Tyre alone. But Alexander the Great comes in and he lays siege against the coastal city. Takes it very quickly. But they come into the city and they find it completely deserted. They look across the water and there are all the Tyrians laughing at them, baiting them, you know. What up, Alexander? Bring it on. Can't touch this. You know. Uh, 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 uh. <laughs> For seven months, they shot volleys of fire and, and arrows and spears. They tried to shoot across. They could not reach that island until Alexander had a great thought. What if we take all the ruin of the city and just start dumping it into the sea? And build us a bridge. And they built a floating bridge across to the island and they conquered Tyre. When they got in there, Alexander, infuriated by seven long months of fighting, burned the city to the ground. Taking all the treasure and the wealth and dumping it into the ocean. Exactly as Zechariah said would, pro- would happen. The Lord will dispossess her and cast her wealth into the sea and she will be consumed with fire. That's history, gang. That is what Zechariah saw. That's what he wrote. Verse 5. Ashkelon will see it and be afraid. Now, Ashkelon at that time was inhabited by the Philistines. Ashkelon will see it. Gaza too will rise in great pain. Ekron, for her expectation, has been confounded. Moreover, the king will perish from Gaza. And Ashkelon will not be inhabited. And a mongrel race will dwell in Ashdod. And I will cut off the pride of the Philistines. And again, the the literal uh, uh, fulfillment of these prophecies is stunning when we look at history. These cities were all conquered by Alexander as well. He put an end to the Philistines as a people group. This is when it happened. Around 332 BC, the Philistines were completely conquered, would never again rise as a nation, would never rise as a nation. Verse 5 says, Ashkelon will not be inhabited. Interesting, today Ashkelon is is an Israeli city. Ashkelon and Ashdod are both filled with Israeli high-rises. But the original site of Ashkelon is not the same site as Ashkelon today. You can visit the ruins of Ashkelon, what was left of that Philistine city. It's right on the seacoast. The Israeli Ashkelon is actually inland a bit. But the ruins remain, and as the Bible declares, no one will live there, no one does. No one lives in Ashkelon. Verse 7 says, I will remove their blood from their mouth and their detestable things from between their teeth. Again, talking about the Philistines and specifically their blood and detestable things are the sacrificial foods of idolatry. I'm going to brush their teeth, the Lord says. I'm cleaning out their mouths of all this idolatrous filth. They would sacrifice, they would eat the meat as part of the sacrifice, they would eat the blood, drink the blood as part of the sacrifice, and all this horrible pagan uh, mentality, God says, I'm cleaning it out, I'm washing it away. Why? Because then, they also will be a remnant for our God. (laughs) And be like a clan in Judah, and Ekron like a Jebusite. Whoa, what? Prophecy tells us the Philistines will be important to God, will will, will matter to God. If I'm reading this right, they will be a remnant. I'm going to preserve a remnant of the Philistines for myself. Okay, well, that explains why he has to remove idolatry, why he has to clean it out of their mouths. 
Because they're going to be a remnant for him. But I thought, I thought you just said, Rick, that the Philistines were wiped out. They were. Watch this. Again, it says they will be like a mongrel race in verse 6. They'll be like a clan in Judah and Ekron like a Jebusite. Think it through historically. What happened to the Philistines? They became integrated into Israel. They were assimilated into the people of Israel. Note back in verse 6, mongrel is literally bastard. That's the, the literal translation of the word, that they will, that they will become like a, a mixed group of people of uncertain uh, parentage. What does that mean? Well, there's even more here. He says Ekron will be like a Jebusite. Well, what happened to the Jebusites? Way back, the Jebusites had the city of Jebus, Jerusalem. David conquered Jerusalem. The Jebusites conformed to Israel, assimilated into Israel. They became a people group no more. They just intermarried and lived with and moved among the Jews and became Jews themselves. They accepted David's authority and his rule and his throne. And this is history. Just as the Jebusites assimilated into Israel, so did the Philistines. And I've shared this recently. One of the greatest ironies to me is that the Palestinians today, or at least the Palestinian authority, that corrupt and and pagan authority, claim to be ancient Philistines. You know what history tells us? The ancient Philistines are Jews today. And have been assimilated among the people of Israel. It's history. Zechariah, again, writing this down 150 years before it happened. Well, all of that took place, all of that march of Alexander. And finally, he comes to Jerusalem. Watch what happens, verse 8. But I will camp around my house because of an army, because of him who passes by. And returns, so he passed by going down to Gaza, going down to the Philistines, and then returned up to Jerusalem. That was the the march of Alexander. And he says, no oppressor will pass over them anymore, for now I have seen with my eyes. I love that. God says, I will camp around my house. Wait a minute, God likes camping? What does this mean? Josephus describes the history for us. He talks about how Alexander, after this great military march, comes to Jerusalem and he runs into a high priest. In fact, a high priest named Yadua. Yadua the high priest was in Jerusalem and he had a vision from the Lord. The high priest did. The vision was of him wearing his high priestly garb with the the mitre on his head, that that golden uh, plate that sat on the front of his hat, and the, the plate said, Holy to Yahweh, was engraved right on it. And the priest saw himself coming out of the city and meeting Alexander the Great. So in obedience to that, Jadua the high priest, dressed in his priestly garb, put the mitre on his head, and went out from the city to meet this military commander. He was uh, followed by a great throng of people. In fact, all of the priests gathered with him and followed him out in front of the people wearing their priestly linens. Alexander sees this. And he comes out to meet Yadua the priest. When Alexander the Great saw Yadua, he bowed down. He worshipped the God of the Jews. In that moment, he took the hand of Yadua, the high priest. Alexander's men were shocked. 
his primary general, Parmenio, said, how can you, who are adored as a king, adore the, high, the, the, the priest of the Jews? How can you do this? And according to Josephus, Alexander replied, I did not adore him, but the God who hath honored him with his high priesthood. For I saw this very person in a dream, in this very habit. When I was at Dios in Macedonia, when I was considering with myself how I might obtain dominion of Asia, he, that is this priest in this vision, he exhorted me to make no delay, but boldly to pass over the sea, promising he would conduct my army and would give me the dominion over the Persians. Alexander claims to have had a vision of this high priest in this purple garb and wearing that that mitre on his forehead. Isn't it marvelous how God works? He gives the high priest a vision and says, I want you to go see Alexander. He gives Alexander a dream saying, when you see him, this is the guy who's going you know, to make it all happen for you. So Alexander gave the high priest his right hand. He went up to the temple with him. He offered sacrifices there to God according to the high priest to do his direction, Alexander the Great, in the second temple of the Lord. And history goes on to tell us when Alexander was shown by Yadua the book of Daniel. Daniel chapter 7, Daniel chapter 8, and Daniel chapter 11. And it was shown to him this leopard with wings, this, this fast-moving leopard, this, the bronze part of the statue. When this was described to him, and it was described that it was the Greeks who should destroy the empire of the Persians, he supposed it must be him who it was talking about, and he rejoiced. The following day, Alexander asked the people what favors he should grant them, and at the high priest's request, he accorded them the right to live in full enjoyment of the laws of their forefathers. He also exempted the Jews from payment of tribute. Just the Jews. Everyone else got conquered and wiped out, but God was camping all around his temple. God was taking care of his people. And we read that biblically, but once again, we see it historically. And this is why I love Scripture so much. And this is why I stand on the truth of God's Word. Because every single historical thing that we have seen jives, lines up with prophecy. Biblical prophecy ahead of time. I remind you once again, brothers and sisters, you do not have to be shaky when it comes to the Word of God. You don't have to worry about whether or not this Word is going to be disproven. This has been standing for some 4,000 years. 2,000 including the New Testament. And it is flawless. And the only people who find flaws are those who really aren't looking close enough. The critic who wants to undermine the believer by just throwing something out there that rattles their faith and, and, and puts them off guard so they don't have to have the real conversation about the heart. God's Word. Sadly, um, for Alexander, though, he worshipped the Lord, though so he bowed down to the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and, and his people... It was not a conversion experience. You know, you can go to church and not be converted. You could even sing songs of worship and not have a heart change, not be born again. Being born again is what you do when you give your life to the Lord. And He comes in and you invite Him to change you. Alexander the Great died of pneumonia, brought on, it's believed, by a night uh, of exposure out in the rain. He was in a depressed state of drunkenness. He was depressed because he conquered all of Asia. What was left? What he loved to do, he could do no more. And so in drunken depression, he's out all night, it's raining, he's soaked. When they finally brought him in in a bad state, he got more sick and he got worse, he got pneumonia, and he died at age 33. Death beat the conqueror. 
Of course, you all know at age 33, another conqueror beat death. Alexander the Great's march is not the burden of the word of the Lord. Alexander the Great's march here in these first eight verses is simply the context. It's the setup, if you will. As I said before, it is the study in contrast. Now look at verse 9. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout in triumph, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. He is just and endowed with salvation, humble and mounted on a donkey, even on a colt, the foal of a donkey. This king coming to Zion, greater than Alexander the Great, is just Jesus. Just Jesus. It's not only the Christian scholars, by the way, who believe this verse and following to be profoundly messianic. Alfred Adersheim wrote, Many pages could be filled with quotations from the Talmud, the Midrashim, and the Jewish commentators in which this passage is applied to Messiah. A rabbi by the name of Rashi wrote, This cannot be explained except of King Messiah, for it is said of him... And then he quotes verse 10, And his dominion shall be from sea to sea. But we do not find that one, that such a one ruled over Israel in the time of the second temple. Zechariah comes proclaiming this one will have full and complete dominion. But there was not a king in Israel who had that. Not at that time and not at any time since. There's never been a king from Israel whose dominion runs from sea to sea from the river that would be the river Euphrates to the ends of the earth. Never happened. Prophecy states it will. We have eight verses of prophecy fulfilled saying it's going to happen. If this is fulfilled in the first part of the, of the passage, then why not the last part? Amazing that from a gentle donkey ride to a global dominion, this Messiah King would come. How does that work? Verse 9, as you may know, has been read many times on Palm Sunday. It's the verse applied and actually quoted by Matthew. It's, it's the, the picture we see of Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem. Matthew quotes it for fulfillment, but my friends, it really wasn't all that triumphant. I mean, just being completely honest. Keep your finger there and turn over to Matthew chapter 21. Matthew chapter 21. About two books to the right. Matthew 21, verse 1. Let me just read you through the story. When they, that is Jesus and his following, had approached Jerusalem and had come to Bethphage on the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent two disciples saying to them, Go into the village opposite you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied there with a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, you shall say, The Lord has need of them. And immediately he will send them. This took place to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet, Matthew writes, Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, gentle and mounted on a donkey, even on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. So the disciples went and did just as Jesus had instructed them, and brought the donkey and the colt, and laid their coats on them, and he sat on the coats. Most of the crowd spread their coats in the road. 
And others were cutting branches from the trees and spreading them in the road, the crowds going ahead of him. And those who followed were shouting, Hosanna! Hosanna! I'm sure that's what they were singing. (laughs) To the Son of David, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest! And when he had entered Jerusalem, all the city was stirred, saying, Who is this? And the crowds were saying, This is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth in Galilee. Just that last verse, verse 11, is not a triumphant verse. Oh, this is the dusty Galilean prophet. This is the bumpkin from up north. You know? Understand, I'm not saying it it would have been the attitude. Here comes this guy from the Galilee, the region of the Gentiles. He's not even from Jerusalem. He's not holy. There's nothing. What, what, what's the deal with him? It's that guy, the Nazarene. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Now, I don't know about you, but, but over the years in reading, especially reading through the New Testament, you come across these quotes of, of the Hebrew Scriptures, these quotes of prophecy. And you look at the quote and you go, oh, that's cool. And, and if you're a little ambitious, you, you go back to the Old Testament. You look at the Old Testament quote because you want to see that it's actually there. Yeah, that was said here and yeah, it was done here. But sometimes when you do that, when you compare, they're a little different. Does that make you uncomfortable? It, it has me. Why is this different than that? Why isn't it word for word exactly what was written? Well, part of the reason, as we've talked about, is that the New Testament is written in the Greek. And was probably quoting the Septuagint, that is the Greek translation of the Hebrew Scriptures. So by the time we get it in English, it went from Hebrew to Greek to English, and that's the translation we're getting. Sometimes that's the only reason why there's any difference at all between the way it's worded in the New Testament and the way it's worded in the Hebrew Scriptures. But there are other times where there's just too much difference, and this is one of them. And I want you to note the difference. If, you, if you've got your finger there and you can flip back and forth quickly, I'm lucky I have it in my notes here in front of me. Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9 says, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout in triumph, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. He is just and endowed with salvation, humble and mounted on a donkey, even on a colt, the foal of a donkey. That's Zechariah's prophecy. Matthew quotes it. Matthew 21, verse 5, look at that. Matthew quotes it saying, Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, gentle and mounted on a donkey, even on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. Now, if you see the two side by side, Matthew omits some pretty important stuff, at least I think. Matthew leaves out rejoice greatly. Matthew just says, Say. Matthew leaves out, shout in triumph, O daughter of Jerusalem. That's not in there, in Matthew's quote. And Matthew also leaves out, he is just and endowed with salvation. Now to me, that's an even bigger deal. Matthew, why aren't you writing that? Why aren't you telling, O daughter of Jerusalem, to shout in triumph? I'll tell you why, it was not yet Jerusalem's triumph. It wasn't time for that. When Jesus entered into the city, he was not on his way in. He was on his way out. He was coming to die, not to rule and reign. It was not time for triumph. Matthew, it dials in on a specific moment 
related to the first coming of Jesus Christ. Zechariah, in Zechariah 9, verse 9, is dealing with both the first and the second coming. So he gives a broader picture, a a broader stroke of the brush, if you will, all in verse 9, that encapsulates both the first coming and the second coming. You see, Zechariah couldn't see the difference. And we know that none of the Hebrew prophets could see the difference between first coming and second coming. They didn't have that that filter of history through which they could look back and see, oh, he meant that for now and that for the future. And you need to understand that when you read the Hebrew prophets, they didn't know to differentiate between the two comings of Messiah. They just assumed Messiah was going to come in one coming, but that was confusing for them. Sometimes Messiah comes as a servant. Right? Zechariah chapter 3 verse 8. Behold, I'm going to bring in my servant, the branch. Okay, so Messiah is a servant. But Isaiah 53 even takes it further and says... The servant is a suffering servant. The servant's going to die. The servant's going to give his life. The servant's going to be beaten unrecognizable. And in writing these things, you, you can understand how the prophets would be like, well, wait. Sometimes he comes as a servant. But sometimes he comes as a glorious king. How do those both work? Zechariah chapter 6, verse 12. Behold, a man whose name is Branch. So we know it's the same guy who's the servant. He will branch out from where he is. He will build the temple of the Lord. He will build the temple of the Lord and he will sit and bear the honor and sit and rule on his throne. The servant is a ruler. The servant is a king. If you watch Downton Abbey, that's not okay. You got your servants and you have your lords. And the two don't mix. And the prophets look at this. And sometimes both descriptions, that is servant and king, they fall into the same passage... The prophet's understanding, somehow they knew this is the same guy. But they didn't know how it worked. Listen to Peter as he describes this. First Peter, I'll just read it to you. First Peter chapter 1, verse 10. As to your salvation, he writes, the prophets who prophesied of the grace that would come to you made careful searches and inquiries, seeking to know what person or time the Spirit of Christ within them was indicating as he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the glories to follow. Peter says that's what the guys didn't understand. How it could be both. It was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves, but you. In these things which have now been announced to you through those who preach the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. And so Peter explains. The prophets didn't understand. All they knew is they were supposed to speak the word of God. And so speak the word they did. But Zechariah was serving you. When he wrote this, do you realize? Zechariah wrote this for our teaching this morning. So that we could sit here today. I'm so thankful for that because my computer went out this week. And I had a couple of days of not being able to really study. And the Lord reminded me, Rick, it's not your teaching. My word was written 2,500 years ago for this morning. So you just share my word. So Matthew, he could draw out specifics in detail of Jesus' first coming. And so all Matthew tells us, go back to Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9. What Matthew draws out of that verse is only what happened in the triumphal entry, so-called, of Jesus in his first coming. 
And all the aspects of that verse, the shouting in triumph of Jerusalem, that day will come. But it was not that day. The fact that he's just and endowed with salvation. Hey, salvation will come. But it was not that day. Not in terms of the salvation of Israel. Not yet. So Matthew only quotes what applied at the time. Zechariah paints much broader strokes. Now, what do those broad strokes tell us about Jesus? And that's really what I wanted to talk about this morning. Verse 9, read it again. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout in triumph, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king. Well, right there, that tells us that this king Messiah is Jewish. That this king Messiah is of Israel. Belongs to the Jewish people first. And second, the Greek. Your king is coming to you. He is just and endowed with salvation, humble and mounted on a donkey, even on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Three things that we can learn about the character of Christ here. In contrast, remember, to Alexander the Great. What about Christ Jesus? He's just in His coming. He's just in His coming. The Hebrew word is tzaddik, and it means righteous. He's righteous in His coming. Well, of course He is. He's Jesus. How could He not be righteous in His coming? He's just Jesus, right? So wherever Jesus is, whatever Jesus does, because He is the God-man, because He's perfect, because He is, he is God in the flesh, He's right. He says something, it's right. You don't understand it? Doesn't matter. It's still right because Jesus said it. He is just. He is sadiq. He is righteous. But it's more than that. Because it's not just an internal thing. It's not just a character quality of Christ. It's an external thing. It's what Jesus does. He is just in His coming. David Barron in his commentary said, He's animated with righteousness. As if righteousness flows from Him and through Him and gets all over those who are near Him. That's what Jesus does. Romans 8.10 says, If Christ is in you, though the body is dead because of sin, yet the Spirit is alive because of righteousness. Because He's righteous. If He's in you, guess what? You're righteous. And righteousness isn't boring. Righteousness was one of those words as a young youth pastor I avoided because it sounded kind of highfalutin and churchy and, and honestly a little dull. Boy, was I wrong. Righteousness is very life. The righteousness of Jesus, 1 Corinthians 1.30, says, By His doing, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption. And Paul in Philippians 1.11 talks about having been filled with the fruit of righteousness, which comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. It, it alters me. It changes me. It makes me a better man. Makes you ladies better women. When we are filled with the righteousness of Jesus, His righteousness animates our very lives. He is just in His coming. If He comes to you, He's not going to leave you as you are. Oh, He'll meet you where you are. He'll come no matter where, how low, how much in the dregs, in the dump you feel like you are. He will meet you there, but He's not going to leave you there. He's going to develop righteousness in you. He's just in His coming. He's endowed with salvation in His coming. The Hebrew word is noshah. Now the root is yasha, which is where the word Yeshua comes from that means Savior. 
or saved one or salvation of God. But Nosha is written in the passive tense. I, I know I mention tenses every now. It's not important that you write down as passive. Just understand this. What it really means, he is endowed with salvation in his coming, means in his coming, he comes having been saved. That's weird. When was Jesus saved? He comes as one having been saved. Now maybe we start to understand why Matthew left this part out. Because when Jesus came riding into Jerusalem on that day, he did not come having been saved. He came, as I said before, about to die. His having been savedness, if you will, would happen three days, actually a week later. Three days after his death. He would be delivered from death having been saved. And only then could he come as mighty Messiah endowed with salvation, having been saved. Now, this may sound a little wonky. Stay with me. Psalm 16, verse 10 says, You will not abandon my soul to Sheol, David writes. And then prophetically says, Nor will you, speaking to the Lord God, nor will you allow your Holy One to undergo decay. Jesus would not stay in the grave. It's why he never bought a grave, because he only needed to borrow one for three short days. <laughs> Acts chapter 2, verse 23. Peter says, This man, delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, you nailed to a cross by the hands of godless men and put him to death. But God raised him up again, putting an end to the agony of death, since it was impossible for him to be held in its power. Now, a completely different sermon for another time is one that would answer the question, who raised Jesus from the dead? Well, you said Jesus, Glenn, and you're right. Susie said the Holy Spirit. She's right. Somebody just said God. He's right. In different passages in the, in, the, in the New Testament, we read that. The Holy Spirit raised Christ from the dead. God the Father raised Christ from the dead. Jesus raised himself from the dead. It was the work of the entire Trinity. Romans 8.11 referring to the Spirit saying, If the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, He who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through His Spirit who dwells in you. It's epic, gang. I mean, it's mind-blowing to think about how God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit, all one, but all unique, function and work together, and all were involved in the deliverance, in the salvation of Jesus Christ from the dead. Having been saved. The idea is this, gang. His salvation means my salvation. That He would die, a man, like you, like me, in the flesh, that he would be put to death, but then conquer that death and come back from it. What that means is he now provides safe passage even through death should I die. Safe passage to the Lord. There is salvation in no one else. Amen. Only in Jesus. There is no other way. Jesus is it. For all of the, of the multiple ideas out there in America today, there is still yet one way to be saved, one way to God the Father, and it is through Jesus the Son. He is the only way. He's coming to you endowed with salvation. He comes to this country right now endowed with salvation if people will take him up on it. And I know people say, can't all roads and all rivers just go to the same place? 
All roads to the same destination. All rivers to the sea. I mean, it's such a lovely thought. You know, it's poetic. We all just get in our river and we head down and we flow down the mountainside and ultimately we end in the sea. I have seen some rivers not end in the sea. I've seen some roads end with dead ends. Answer me this. Let's just get practical for a second with this idea of him endowed with salvation. He comes bringing salvation. Having been saved, he comes to save. Here comes Jesus. Do all roads lead to Seattle? Can you get on Highway 2 and get to Seattle? Well, yeah, if you cut off it. No, I don't mean that. I mean, just stay on Highway 2. Years ago, a friend of mine who was a little clueless uh, in high school, she was discovering how far I-5, the I-5 corridor, ran up and down the, the West Coast. She was like, you, can, you mean you can stay on I-5 and go all the way up through Oregon to, to Washington State? And I go, yeah. And she goes, could you go like all the way to New York? <laughs> no. <laughs> I-5's not going to get you to New York. You see what I'm saying? Do all roads lead to Denver? Do all roads lead to L.A.? Is it even possible that all roads lead to God? What about Hitler's road? Did that lead to God? How about the road of David Koresh? Those of you who remember that false prophet from years ago. What do you do with all the false messiahs who have their own road? What do you do with the liars and the cheats who make up a road? Let's say you could list 150 ways to get to God, and 149 of those ways was completely legitimate, but one was wrong. How would you know? How could you be sure? What if you ended up on the one road out of 150 that was a dead end? What then? Do you realize what God did in Jesus? He wasn't being exclusive. He was being inclusive. He made it as easily as, as easy as possible for all people to find Him. One way. Just one. You don't have to search out. You don't have to find all these other ways. You don't have to work your way there. One way. Jesus Christ. Period. That's it. Simple. Even your pastor can get that. <laughs> By endowing one man with salvation, Israel's King Messiah with salvation, God removes the guesswork. He takes away the questions. All the complexity, all the religiosity is pulled out of it by simply and graciously placing salvation on the singular shoulders of Jesus Christ. One way to the Father. And everybody can walk that one way. That's so simple. And so Peter and John said in Acts 4.12, there is no other name under heaven that has been given among men by which we must be saved. There's no other way. They're just the one. That's good news. Brothers and sisters in Christ, that's good news. Tell people that. Well, what if they say, what about all the other ways? Tell them what I just told you. Make it easy. This just man whose strong arms stretched out for salvation for anyone who believes on his name... He's humble and mounted on a donkey, even on a colt, the full of a donkey. Gang, third thing to know here about the character of Christ, he is humble in his coming. And that word humble in the Hebrew is ani, and it literally means lowly, poor, afflicted. Ever been there? 
Ever felt just kind of impoverished? Like you didn't fit? Ever sit in a, a church setting, perhaps, and looked around at everybody else and just went, man, I am poor and lowly compared to this crowd. I'm not even close to these folks. That's how Jesus came. Poor and lowly. And again, you might ask, how does that work with a glorious king? When Jesus came riding into Jerusalem on the donkey's foal, he didn't have a cent to his name. He resorted to a miracle to pay a tax. <laughs> Do you know that one? Peter comes up and says, Lord, we've got to pay a tax. And he goes, go and, go and grab a fish and you'll, you'll find the two drachma coin in the mouth of the fish. That'll take care of it. How did he do that? Well, he owns everything, really. You know, from a divine perspective, from a human perspective, he had nothing. He didn't have a cent to his name. He didn't have a coat on his back. He didn't have a place to kick off his sandals and call home. As a matter of fact, Jesus said the foxes have holes and the birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. And so when Jesus went to Jerusalem for the feast in the high religious days, he slept out on the Mount of Olives. Or crossed over the Mount of Olives to stay with Lazarus and Mary and Martha at their place. Jesus was humility defined. It wasn't just his demeanor that he had a humble heart. It was his condition. It was his lifestyle. He literally came as a poor man in the first advent. Talk about a servant. Earlier I said the triumphal entry was not all that triumphant, and it really wasn't. Let's mule this over for a bit. He comes in on the donkey. And as a Christian looking back on a Palm Sunday, oh, it's thrilling, it's glorious. We imagine the day, we imagine all the people shouting Hosanna and the palm leaves going down and, and how wonderful it was. From a prophetic perspective, it's glorious. The king riding on the donkey speaks of peace. You know, it speaks of time where there's not war because you don't ride a donkey into war, but you ride a donkey in times of peace. And by the way, I can tell you, in the Middle East, donkeys are not looked at the same way they're looked at in the West. There is a royal sense, there is an honor for someone to ride a donkey there, which may not be the same here, you know, for those of us who grew up watching Hee Haw. Right? A little different. But as a Roman soldier looking on, Jesus triumphus would have been a pitiable thing. A pathetic thing. Hey Gaius, look at this. Romulus, do you see what's going on over there? Uncle Festus, pay attention here. Do you see what's happening? You see, Roman commanders, when they defeated 5,000 or more men in a battle, would have a parade in their honor, and they would march down the street riding a great white steed as, as the people shouted glory to their name, and it was called a triumphus. And it's the same word that's applied to Jesus in the triumphal entry. But from a Roman perspective, here comes this Hebrew prophet riding on a donkey into Jerusalem as if. As if our entire army, as if just a squadron couldn't squash him like that. That's pathetic. It was just Jesus. It was just Jesus. Why did he come that way? He came so humbly that he might reach you. 
and He might reach me. That He might be non-threatening to every person who hears His name and begins to learn about Him. He didn't come glorious, you know, like the courts in Persia. Where, where if the king didn't raise his scepter for you when you came in, you could lose your head. No, that wasn't the way Jesus came. He just rode in on a donkey. He walked about in sandals. He didn't have buildings to preach in. He stood on mountainsides. He drank the water of the Galilee. He and his men would, would eat the grain as they passed through the fields like all poor people would. He came humbly. There is nothing intimidating about a man on a donkey's foal. Nothing high, nothing mighty, nothing standoffish. And so when Jesus says, come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Okay. We can come to a man who's humble. When Jesus in Matthew eleven twenty nine says, Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. We see him coming into Jerusalem when we believe him. He is gentle. He is humble. And he came for me. The burden of the word of the Lord. Gang, it is a study in contrast. Alexander's coming into Jerusalem was mighty and impressive. His army around him. Stuff of dreams and visions. And Jesus rode in on a donkey's foal. The stuff of prophecy. But he came just Jesus. Just endowed with salvation and humble. But when he comes back, verse 10, he says, I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the horse from Jerusalem and the bow of war will be cut off. And he will speak peace to the nations and his dominion will be from sea to sea, from the river to the ends of the earth. Revelation 19, verse 11, John says, I saw heaven open and behold a white horse and he who sat on it is called faithful and true. And in righteousness, he judges and wages war. And on his robe and on his thigh, he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. By the way, that's not a tattoo. (laughs) Well, it says it's on his thigh. That's because when you sit on a horse, your raiment, your robe rests on your thigh. And when you think about the the Jewish robe, what what was that on the thigh? It was the kanat. It was the hem of the garment. It was where the authority was written into, often sewn into, the corners of the robe. Sitting right there on his leg, so you don't have to, you don't have to worry anymore. Maybe you've read that passage and you've gone, boy, Jesus died, but, you know, his, his skirt a little hiked up, it's a little kind of embarrassing. You know, no, no, it's his robe. Speaking of his authority, speaking of who he is, King of kings and Lord of lords, and he's coming for you. <laughs> he is coming for you, man, woman. He's coming for you. Riding on that mighty steed. King of kings. And that could be a frightful thing. In fact, for many it will be. For Israel, they're going to see him and mourn. Zechariah will tell us as one mourns for an only son. The world will see him and be utterly terrified. And people even today, 
if they, if they look at Jesus and they see him batting in on that white steed, it's frightening. That's why the glorious king had to first come as a humble servant. So that we could, right now, today, fix our eyes on him and recognize a comforting thing. One last thing. Note this in verse 9. It says, Behold, your king is coming to you. Your king is coming to you. To you. In the Hebrew, is lock. And lock means for your good. Behold, your king is coming to you. He's coming to you for your good, for my good. And Jesus said in Matthew 10, 45, sorry, Mark 10, 45, not even the son of man came to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. When he came into Jerusalem the first time, it wasn't a triumphal entry. As I said, it was an exit. He was on his way out by way of the cross. When he comes back to Jerusalem, he comes back to rule and reign forever. And Ezekiel saw it, Ezekiel 43, verse 1, Then he led me to the gate, the gate that is facing toward the east, and behold, the glory of the God of Israel was coming from the way of the east. And his voice was like the sound of many waters, and the earth shone with his glory. If you look at Zechariah 9 and 10, verse 9 has elements of the first coming and the second coming in it. Verse 10 is all the second coming. What Zechariah couldn't see was the church age planted right in between. And that's where we are right now. We are in the age between, the age of grace. This is the time to decide what you're going to do with Jesus. What are you going to do with him? Right now, his humble hand is outstretched. Right now, he says, let me meet you where you are. Then, it will be too late. If you've never given your life to Jesus, I invite you to do it this morning. If you've never made that choice, this is the time.